Boy, it's good to see you all, and it's good to be with you this morning. This week, as we continue our journey through Luke, we're picking up right where we left off last week. We're going to stay in chapter, chapter 18 for another week. And just by way of reminder, last week we talked about the parable of the persistent widow, which was a parable that, that Jesus told us. And the central point of that parable was simply this, that, that when God's people cry out to him in prayer, God inclines his ears to hear their cry because of his deep love for them. I just want you to hold on to that as we go into this, because one of the things that's central to, to know about that is that, uh, is that prayer is intimate business between God and his people. And it is a wonderful gift that God gave us that we can pray to him, and it is the good work of us drawing near to the, to the one that we were made for. So with that in mind, let's look at this. This is Luke chapter 18. I'll read verses 9 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the little children come to me, but do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. And truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Lord, you are with us, uh, that as we've drawn near to you, before you, in worship, prayer, singing, hearing from you, uh, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning, and that you would help us as we hear from your word to uh, learn more about what your heart, what your heart is, and uh, that we might be encouraged, instructed, and that we might ta- be taught more about what you're calling us to in this passage. And I pray that you would help me strengthen my mind and my voice, help me to preach before your people in a way that honors you and that serves your people. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a little uh, party life hack, party conversation life hack. You know, the, the challenge whenever you're gathering together with people, especially people that you don't know all that well, is how to get conversation started, right? Like, what can we talk about together. And uh, a question that I usually uh, like to use that can be a little bit risky is to just ask the people if, uh, if they've ever met anybody famous. 
And sometimes that can be a little risky because then there's this mutual acknowledgement that none of us have ever met anybody famous, right? But, but often what you get, usually it works out, often what you get is, is a funny story that somebody tells about a time when they kind of came across somebody famous that they might admire or, or something like that, um, doing something totally normal. And it, it, it's not the meeting them that, that's, that's really interesting about the story. Usually what's, what's interesting is, uh, is the way the person responded to meeting somebody famous. Uh, because it's almost a universal rule that we will do something silly or ridiculous when we come across somebody that's great. Like when we're in the vicinity of greatness, it can, uh, it can bring out all the crazy in us, right? But a friend of mine... Um, this, this happened years ago. A friend of mine actually came across the actor Tim Robbins in a hotel. This was years ago. And if you don't know Tim Robbins, really famous actor, really hot during the 90s and early 2000s. He was in probably the best movie ever made. And if you ever want to argue about that, I'm ready. Um, but, uh, but he's also tall and lanky, so he kind of stands out in a crowd, or so I've heard. But my friend was in his hotel, and he, he kind of spotted Tim Robbins across the way, and he realized that I have to find a way to meet Tim Robbins. And uh, I'm going to leave out some details here, but the, the way the story goes is he ran into Tim Robbins in the bathroom of the hotel. I'm not kidding. And, uh, he, and, and, uh, and for him, he's like, in, this, in these moments, in the same bathroom as Tim Robbins, he's trying to strategize a way to make his path intersect with Tim Robbins' path. Uh, and it was just, uh, just a bunch of awkwardness all at once is the way he describes it. It's all about timing for him. He's trying to time his way out of the bathroom, and he figures that the best strategy is to come, is to like run into him somewhere between the sink where you wash your hands and the door to leave the bathroom. And so there's like some lingering, uh, there's like trying not to be awkward, maybe washing his hands for a little bit. It's all about timing. And he arranges it so that he can hold the door open for Tim Robbins as he's leaving the bathroom. And, uh, and it kind of works that way. So he's holding the door open. He's looking at him. And uh, Tim Robbins looks at him and uh, just nods and says, thank you, like anybody, any normal person would, right? And my friend, for all of his strategizing, it had never occurred to him to think about what he might want to say if, uh, if he ever had an opportunity to speak to Tim Robbins. And so what comes out is, as he's holding the door, he's looking at him with starstruck eyes what comes out is anything for you, Tim Robbins. <laughs> and you might think that's kind of silly, but I actually think that's pretty normal. Uh, because what happens when, whenever we draw near to greatness is something kind of crazy can come out of us. Usually it's like, it could be something fanatical. It could be something uh, just embarrassing. It could be a glorious moment. It could be silly. But whatever it is, it's going to be revealing in some way about kind of who you are in the internal workings of your heart and your disposition toward who, whoever you ran into. When, when we used to live in, in Nashville, or greater Nashville, uh, there was an unwritten rule amongst the locals that if you came across like uh, somebody famous, because you could at any moment, um, then you had to play it cool. And that was a thing because, uh, because um, 
that was the thing because people would act crazy when they get around somebody famous. And what we have here are three people, three different types of people that are drawing near to God and the internal workings of their heart are being revealed as they come to him. And Jesus kind of goes through each one of them and he tells us about uh, about what is going on in that person's heart and how he responds to them, how God responds to these people as they draw near to him. And so that's what we're talking about this morning is what it actually looks like to draw near to God. And drawing near to God is kind of tricky for us, isn't it? Like for some of us, that might be a little scary. For some of us, it might be a little refreshing. But at all times, whenever we draw near to God, it reveals something that's true about us, isn't it? So I'm going to work through each one of these characters. You've got a, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Jesus tells a parable as they go up to the temple to pray to God. They're drawing near to him. And then you've got children coming to Jesus. So I'm going to go through each one of them. And I'm going to talk about the honest, sorry, the arrogant, the honest, and the free. The arrogant, the honest, and the free. First, we see arrogance here, and and this is really given to us in the picture Jesus paints of the Pharisee that goes to the temple to pray to God, and that Jesus is creating this story, but there's no doubt that amongst the people that are hearing this story, that that there might have been some reality to the story that Jesus is telling. So where do we see arrogance? Well, first, I think you see it, and you see it in the comparative attitude That's in the Pharisee. Look in verse 11. He starts his prayer with, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. He he has the, the boldness or the audacity to like point to somebody else who's also in the temple and saying, thank you that I'm not like them. Now, in some sense, just to be fair, there's a sense in which this prayer could be a good one. Like, there is a way to humbly pray, thanking God that he has protected you from some sins. And if we have any character and integrity at all, it's only because God has sown it deep into our hearts. But what we're seeing here is that this man is standing in a crowd of people, and he's assessing other men through his prayers, including somebody that's in the temple with him. And what's being exposed here in the internal workings of his heart is that he views the people he's around with contempt that he feels entitled to because of the conduct of his life. And what he's done is he's fostered a comparative attitude that sets him above others in his own eyes. So you see arrogance there. You also see arrogance in his claims Look at verse 12. He's making claims about why he's superior to these other people, and he points to his record of things that he's excelled at, mainly tithing and fasting. And a Pharisee, just so you know, you you might know already, but a Pharisee is really known for their rigorous devotion to to these religious practices. 
they would hold themselves to a high degree of fasting. He says he fasted twice a week. Well, the Old Testament law really only required fasting once a year. It was something that could be encouraged during different times. But there was a, a law requirement for fasting, you know, once a year before the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisee would hold themselves to a higher standard. And this man fasts twice a week. And the Pharisees would also tithe. And, of course, the law required God's people to tithe. And the Pharisees would tithe everything they had, even the herbs that they would harvest. They would, again, they, they're like holding themselves to a higher standard there. And the thing is, is that he probably really has done these things. He's making honest claims about the things they were done. They were just known for doing these things. And listen, there is a way that we can foster a good and healthy religious devotion to our, you know, through our habits. But that's actually not what we're seeing here in this passage. What we're witnessing is the exposure of an arrogant heart whose behavior, he thinks, has earned God's favor. And he thinks that because he's willing to do more than the law requires, that he has special standing before God. And his whole prayer, you might have winced a little bit as I read it, because the whole prayer reveals an exceeding preoccupation with himself. When I was studying this, I was, uh, I was like, I re- I'm not kidding, I wrote in my notes, I said, who is he actually praying to? Like he acknowledges God right in the beginning, and then you have five personal pronouns, I, in the rest of the prayer. He's talking about himself. He like acknowledges God and then he goes on to talk about himself the whole time. One writer called this, I love this, he called it a self-congratulatory monologue disguised as prayer. See something about his heart in that passage, don't you? Because he feels God should be pleased to have him on the team because of all that he has done. And as we think about this, I I just want to remind you what the point of this whole parable that Jesus tells is right at the beginning. It says he tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And what I want you to draw from this is the understanding that self-righteousness and contempt for others cooperate with each other in just the very worst of ways. They're mutually beneficial. And in this prayer, they're so clearly tied up with each other, they're almost inextricable. And the truth is, for you and me, the more that we look at at who we are and what we've achieved, the best that we have done, and the more we hold closely to, to the things that we take pride in, the easier it is to think low of those around us. It is so easy to look at the people around us and compare ourselves to them. And what's dangerous is if we seek to compare ourselves to others in a way that's, that's, exceedingly, um, that's exceedingly favorable in our way. It, 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 it inhabits a way of looking down on those around us. And in those moments, the easier it is to criticize people. The easier it is to judge, the easier it is to hold a grudge or to separate yourself from others. And if that's true of us in our relationship with each other, that's certainly true of us in our relationship with God. It would indicate a distance in our relationship with God if we carry ourselves 
with an arrogant heart, it will create a distance between us and God. It will be very difficult to ever even consider drawing near to God. In fact, I would question whether the arrogant heart really even feels their need for God. It's like, how would you understand your need for who Jesus is if you're finding ways to be content with yourself? What does the psalm say? The psalm says, for though the Lord is high, he is grand and glorious. He has regard for the lowly, but the prideful he knows from afar. So Jesus is telling us something very important about what the prayers of the arrogant heart look like and how they're not very near to God. They draw near to God in show, but not in reality. These things are impediments to the relationship with God that we're meant for. And maybe you're thinking, this doesn't really apply to me. Like, I I don't pray prayers like this, right? I, I know somebody who might need to hear about this, but certainly I'm good, right? And this is where I want you to hear that prayers expose us all. That a habit of prayer will reveal to you what your heart actually looks like. Because I'll tell you that ne- never, am I, never can I become more aware of the arrogance of my own heart, of my own pride, of the ways that I've treated people I love and people I don't love with contempt than during times of prayer. That it, that it, that it exposes us all. And this is why, and we have to know this, that when God invites us to pray, to come before him, to draw near to him in prayer, he's really inviting us to honesty. And we see that captured for us in the prayer of the tax collector. Now, it would be totally reasonable for those in the crowd to wonder how often they might have actually seen a tax collector in the temple. We talked about this a little bit in the past, but tax collectors, you just got to know, tax collectors were completely despised in this culture. Like they were avoided. At all costs, you tried to avoid a tax collector. Tax collectors were seen as thieves. They were seen as fraudulent. Their whole job was to serve this foreign occupying Roman government by collecting taxes for the Romans. And the way they made a living was to gouge their own, uh, their own people, their own brothers and sisters, uh, uh, and, uh, and try and take more taxes than they owed to skim off the top to take for themselves. So they were seen as thieves. And their whole vocation was fraudulent. And they were also seen as people that were betraying their own people. And so they were the lowest of the low. And it's really significant here that Jesus uses a tax collector to paint the picture of an honest heart before God. And you see honesty first in his posture. If, if you, it, he's standing alone, possibly because others know who he is and won't come near to him. Maybe that's why. Or maybe because he doesn't feel he deserves to be near them. You, you, you also see that he won't lift his eyes to pray to God. Uh, the, the normal posture of prayer then was to stand in the temple. Standing was the posture of prayer in the temple. And you would lift your eyes to God and you would say prayers. And it was really important. You didn't, you, you, you'd say prayers out loud, but you didn't want to be too loud because you didn't want people to know what you were saying. But, you, but it, was, it was welcome to say prayers out loud. 
And so posture, like the posture of your prayer as you come before God was really important to them, just like it is to us. And what you see in his posture is an honesty before God about who he is as he seeks to draw near to him. But you also see honesty in his confession. Look in verse 13. You see that he beats his breast and he cries out to God. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is a man who comes before the Lord and he is very aware of who he is and what he has done. He knows his need of honesty. Sorry, he knows his need of mercy. And he agonizes over his sin. And it's like, when you look at this, it's actually refreshing to see the honesty that he carries as he draws near to God. And listen, friends, there is some way that the audacity of worship should invite this kind of honesty out of us. Like as we, as we gather together in worship, God is calling us to bring our whole selves to this place. As we gather together and sing and pray and hear from the Lord, he is calling us to acknowledge his greatness. And one of just the most natural reactions to that is to feel exposed in all the ways that we're not worthy to stand before God. There's a reason that we actually insert our confession of sin right after we sing a hymn of adoration. Have you ever noticed that? This morning we sang How Firm a Foundation, which speaks about Jesus' relentless commitment to his people. And you, you simply can't sing that without thinking about all the ways that I have failed in my commitments to the Lord and to the people that he has, he, he has pulled me toward. And so what happened? The natural thing for us to do is to simply confess our sins. And here's, what's the, here's the most amazing thing about God who invites us to draw near to him. Is he welcomes our honest confession. There's no exhausting pretense in this prayer. There's no like big, he doesn't use any big words. Like you know how we pray sometimes and we feel like we got to use like extra holy words, you know. There's, no, there's nothing like that in this passage. No important, no no big words, just important ones. God have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. And what happens to the tax collector? How does God respond to this confession? You have got to see this. Jesus says he goes back down from the temple justified. That he hears the humble confession of a sinner and he justifies him. Now, now, that's legal language. A judge would pronounce that word over somebody in his courtroom. It means that in the the courts of justice, that you are absolved of any judgment that that might come against you. And so if you hear one thing this morning, I want you to make sure you hear this. That when you pray honest prayers of confession before God, seeking the mercy that can only be found in him, He forgives you. That when you look to Jesus with faith in his sacrifice on your behalf that pays for your sins, you are forgiven. You are quite literally justified before him. And friends, if you are justified, then you are free. You are truly free. 
And I don't think there's any mistake here that Luke inserts this story of children coming to Jesus right after this passage. You see, it's just so sweet. Verse 15 says that at this time, parents were bringing their children to Jesus, bringing infants before him. And, uh, and what they were probably doing was looking for Jesus to reach out and touch them and bless their children. But the disciples who self-appointed themselves as crowd control for Jesus are, are telling them not to, like they're saying, Jesus doesn't have time for your children. And in some ways, what they're doing, they're, they've like created themselves uh, in some way a position that the Pharisees would have had. They're acting like gatekeepers to Jesus. And Jesus responds by rebuking uh, the disciples. In, in, Mark's, uh, in Mark's telling of the story, he uses actually harsher language. He says that Jesus was indignant at any attempt by the disciples to keep their children from, get, from coming to Jesus. And, Jesus, when it, um, it, and uh, for many of us, this is like ghastly, isn't it? Like when you look at this story, this is, another, this is the other thing that might make you wince. Like who, what disciple in their right mind who's been hanging around with Jesus for any amount of time would try and keep children from him, right? And that's because children are everything to us in a lot of ways, right? But that wasn't really the case in this, in this world. Uh, children, um, children were seen as troublesome. Children were a nuisance until they grew and were strong enough to contribute to the family. That's who children were. They were kind of, they were people that you fed and you took care of until they could give back. They were seen almost exclusively through the lens of usefulness. Until a child was useful for the family business, they didn't really have value. And when Jesus rebukes the disciples... And he points to these children and says, to such belong the kingdom of God. He says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He's making two very important points. First is he is making the countercultural statement that my people's children are very important to me. That would have been revolutionary. But here's the other thing he's saying. I need you to hear this. He is saying your children have something to teach you about what it means to draw near to God. And what is it? When you look at a child who is convinced of the love that their parents have for them, a child comes freely with nothing to offer. A child is inherently dependent on a provider. Just like we are inherently we are inherently dependent on God who sustains us and takes care of us. And if you want to understand the picture that Jesus is painting for you, his child, about what it looks like for you to draw near to God, then I just want you to watch a child convinced of the love for their parent crawl into their mother or father's lap. That's the picture he's giving you. It's freedom. It's peace. And it's intimacy. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I got sucked into a a TV show that people have been telling me about for a little while. I don't know why, but the Great British Baking Show is just like taking over my soul, I think, in some ways. I can't stop watching it. 
Uh, Shonda busted me the other day in my bedroom, like like trying to sneak an episode in. But but uh, I don't I don't love baking. I don't bake. I don't have a passion to bake. I'm not interested in starting to bake, and I don't understand anything about the science of baking. When they talk about proving bread, I. Like, I don't know. Like, how does yeast work? I don't get it. It, It's also not a good show to watch if you're trying to, like, limit your sugar intake. It's destructive, I think, in a lot of ways. But but it's really, really simple. If you've never seen it, they just assemble a bunch of amateur bakers, okay? They pull them together. These are self-taught amateur bakers. They, They don't bake professionally. They just, like, bake for friends and family. And they run them through all these incredibly stressful baking challenges where they tell them to make something they've never heard of with limited instructions and ingredients and they they just said go to it go do it and uh, and what they show you is the kind of stress that these bakers have because at the end of this challenge what they produce during that time that they have is going to be judged and these judges can be ruthless they, they will look at what, you, uh, at what you produce and they will make an assessment of the worth and skill that you bring to the table in those moments. Um, and, uh, and you know how the, the, the British are very good with their words, okay? They are like incisively honest in their feedback that they give to these people. And what, what I notice, it happens every episode, is one of these bakers, they're, they're all just seeking to try to find a way to please the judges because they know they're going to have to come before the judge and they're going to have to give an accounting for all that they offered. And in those moments, these judges, it's almost godlike. They have the power to completely encourage this baker and what they've done, or they can completely destroy them just with the use of their words. And it is a terrifying moment for them without exception. And one of the things that Jesus is telling you in this story is that you never have to be afraid of that moment when you draw near to God, because he is not looking at your record. He is not looking at what your life produces, but he's looking at the accomplishment, the salvation accomplished by his own son on your behalf. And when you draw near to him, you can come like a child freely with great peace. Amen. Let me pray. What an encouraging thought. And Jesus, I pray that as we look at these words that you call us to, I pray that we would be encouraged deep in our spirit. Help us to believe these things that you are telling us and give us the grace to serve you in this place. I pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.